1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fassman. And from London, I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we
0: provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world.
1: Russian soldiers seized Kherson, a port city in southern Ukraine, in early March. Its residents have protested, even drawing Russian gunfire and grenades. We hear from one man there about what life has been like under foreign occupation.
0: And you've probably heard of sake and you may have heard of shochu, two Japanese tipples made from rice. But there's also awamori, potent stuff that's been in a decline that might be reversed simply by making it less fiery. First up, though, Hundreds of furious protesters gathered this week outside the residence of Sri Lanka's prime minister. They want the government out. Demonstrations that have been simmering since mid-March have reached boiling point. (laughs) Sri Lanka is in the grip of an economic crisis, the worst since the 1940s, and blame is falling on the president, Gotabaya Rajapaksa. It's a dangerous time for Gotha, as he's known, the latest in a long, dynastic line of politicians from the Rajapaksa family. He is cutting an ever more embattled and isolated figure.
2: Sri Lanka's president, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, won the presidential election in 2019 by a really large margin. He then dissolved the legislature, filled the government with relatives and cronies. And then when the parliamentary election happened in 2020, his coalition won a big majority which allowed him to change the constitution, and he gave himself even more power.
0: Lena Schipper writes about South Asia for The Economist.
2: But over the past few weeks, that hold has been slipping. Sri Lanka's economy is in free fall. The rupee has declined by more than 30% against the dollar. Food and fuel is becoming incredibly expensive. People are very angry, and they've taken to the streets to protest against this situation.
0: How is all of that economic mess manifesting
2: for Sri Lankans? Things like food and particularly cooking gas have been an extremely short supply for weeks. People are having to wait for hours to buy those things. And if they can get them at all, they're paying absolutely exorbitant prices. There have been power cuts up to 13 hours in some places. And over the past few days, there's also been really severe shortage of medicines. Doctors are saying, no, we don't have the essential stuff to be doing our jobs. We might have to close. People are going to die. It's really very depressing.
0: So how did it get this bad?
2: There's a combination of long-running economic imbalances, external shocks recently, and mismanagement by the government, which have all played a part in the situation getting so terrible. An earlier government, which was headed up by Gotabaya's brother, borrowed very heavily, mainly to finance infrastructure projects. They haven't seen returns. The current administration has slashed taxes, which cut government revenue, which happened very unfortunately right before the pandemic which decimated tourism, a very important source of foreign currency for Sri Lanka. And then there's just been increasing numbers of bad policy ideas. So last year, the government briefly banned fertilizer imports because they thought that would save it dollars. That obviously affected agriculture in the country, (laughs) so that they reversed it pretty quickly. But it hobbled food production anyway. And then just as tourism had started to recover earlier this year, Russia invaded Ukraine and that pushed up commodity prices even more. And all of these things put together have made life incredibly hard for Sri Lankans, including middle class people who are usually shielded from those kinds of crises. They blame the government and they want the government gone.
0: So a combination then of of ineptitude and I guess some bad luck on the part of the government. What's it doing about the protests?
2: Over the past week or so, the government really failed to read the public mood. Mr. Redopaxa imposed a state of emergency about a week ago, which gave the army wide-ranging powers to crack down on unrest, which he hoped would quell the protests, but it didn't. And then he uh, doubled down, imposed a weekend-long curfew and a brief ban on social media in another attempt to stop people from protesting. That really backfired quite badly and people just went back to the streets. The reason why, again, we are gathered here today, is the third day, is because of the constant oppression by the state. Of trying to silence us, trying to ignore our voices. And at this point. So, when all of these repressive measures failed to stop people from protesting, the president changed direction. He rescinded the social media ban. He had an emergency meeting with his cabinet, after which most of his ministers resigned, leaving only himself and his brother Mahinda, who's the prime minister. And the day after that, he lifted the curfew and he named four new interim ministers who were supposed to steer the country out of crisis.
0: And is that working?
2: None of those measures so far have had the desired effect. So one of the ministers he appointed, the finance minister, resigned just 24 hours into the job because he clearly didn't feel like it was particularly appealing. And political stability just deteriorated yet further. In the wake of those decisions, Mr Rajapaksa's coalition partners withdrew their support from its government, which left the government without a parliamentary majority. And the protests have continued. And in the past few days, it's been particularly doctors and nurses who've protested about the, the lack of medicines and medical supplies. And the protesters clearly still want the remaining Rajapaksas gone. But neither the president nor the prime minister have given any indication that they're going to resign. And in the meantime, the opposition has rejected the call to join an interim government and seems uh, reluctant to take charge in the middle of this uh, spiraling
0: crisis. And so what, what is the solution to that crisis, if, if much of what's driving this is, is economic?
2: So it's going to be incredibly difficult to deal with this crisis because the economic situation is pretty dire. Basically, the main issue is that Sri Lanka is at risk of a really messy default on its debt. And it's not going to avoid one without external help. The government's put itself in a very difficult position by waiting until now to seek help from the International Monetary Fund, which is probably going to need in order to meet its debt repayments, which amount to something like $7 billion this year. According to some estimates, around 9% of pre-crisis GDP, it faces a $1 billion bond repayment in July, which is probably not going to be able to make most of the country's foreign reserves have gone and it hasn't had access to global credit markets for two years because it lost that at the beginning of the pandemic. And there's been some sort of support extended by other countries. So India has stepped in in a big way. They've started delivering fuel to Sri Lanka. They've extended credit lines and assistance that's amounting to something like $2.5 billion. But Sri Lanka is going to need more debt relief and more aid to stay afloat. And continue to import food and fuel in the coming months while it deals with restructuring this
0: colossal debt that it's facing. And is that debt relief coming? Is there a way out of this crisis?
2: So it's going to be very difficult to be successful in these negotiations with the IMF while the government is in such disarray because usually for these kinds of things you need a stable Administration with public buy in that can justify those decisions. And the current government definitely doesn't look like it is that. On the other hand, things are not entirely hopeless. The government seems to have started to realize at least how serious the situation is. They've appointed an advisory panel of economists to support them in their negotiations with the IMF and appointed a respected economist to head up the central bank. Those are positive steps. There's also been a slight easing of the protests because there have been fuel shipments from India coming in over the past few days, which has slightly eased the situation on the fuel and power front. But ultimately, those are stopgap solutions and whether the government can convince the people that it's able to deal with this crisis and whether the people believe that it can, that's going to determine whether the country comes out of this in the long term.
0: Thanks very much for joining us, Lena.
2: Thanks very much for having me, Jason.
1: Kherson is a port city on the Dnipro River in southern Ukraine. On March 2nd, it became the first major city to fall under Russian control. After two weeks, Kherson is the first and only major city to fall to Russian forces. An occupying force now
2: in total control of a Ukrainian city.
1: ...with the city's mayor allowing Russian troops to take over the administration building of the city. Locals there are also... But Kherson's residents haven't exactly been rolling over.
3: My name is Andriy. I was born in Kherson and I live in Kherson. All of my family lives in Kherson. I work as a seaman in the merchant fleet.
1: One of the show's editors, Kim Gittelson, has been speaking with a Harrison resident named Andrii almost daily since the city fell to get a sense of what life has been like for ordinary Ukrainians under the occupation. Hello?
4: Hello? Hi. Hello, do you hear me? Hi, like... yes, can you hear me?
3: Yes, yes, I can hear you. It's...
4: I first spoke with Andrea on March 2nd. When I called him up, I asked him when he knew that things had changed in her son. He told me that it was when he checked the live security cameras pointing at the city's main square at 2 o'clock in the morning.
3: I saw that there was like 20 Russian military vehicles. They were surrounding uh, the city administration, and then I realized that something bad is going on.
4: Before the Russians took over, Andre's family had thought about leaving. But they didn't really have another place to go.
3: My grandparents, they were born there. My parents were born there. I was born there. So it's just all of our life is there. So, you know, it's not so easy to just drop everything and leave.
4: So after the takeover, they hunkered down. They tried to get enough food to last for at least a week. But it was pretty hard.
3: You'll spend like one hour in line to get to the shop to finally buy some bread. Otherwise, if you come a little bit later, you will not find any bread.
4: To win over Hearson's residence, Andrei said the Russians trucked in that hard-to-find bread. But things didn't go as the Russians, at least, had planned.
3: They brought some boxes with some basic stuff like bread, water, uh, oil, and so on. I don't know what did they expect. They expected that the whole city will come, like uh, 300,000 people will come to one truck and start taking those boxes. I guess they just wanted to make a nice footage for their television cameras because there was 10 people there trying to get those boxes and three TV cameras men. So they was just trying to make nice footage. Afterwards,
4: Andre's grandfather would tell him that he saw a Russian TV news report about the distribution. Well, sort of.
0: My
3: grandfather, he was watching those Russian news, and it was an episode about Kyrgyzson. They show how people was happy about the stuff they supplied, about uh, that help. They show… Footage, but it was a different city. I don't know where is this is coming from, but uh, they were telling about Kherson, but they was showing another city on the video. It was like completely different footage because nobody wanted to take those supply.
4: The reason Andrei's grandfather was watching Russian news was because one of the first things the Russians did when they took over Kherson was to switch the TV channels from Ukrainian to Russian stations.
3: Now all they have is Russian channels. They broadcasting all of this kind of propaganda on TV. This is, like, crazy. I heard what they're saying, and this is, like, impossible to believe, but people are watching it, and they believe that now I understand why they have such great support in Russia for this war, because what they say on TV is just unbelievable.
4: The reality? In Herson the streets were empty, mostly abandoned during the day since no one had jobs to go to anymore. And at night...
3: When it's dark time, streets are completely empty. You cannot find anyone there because people just afraid to stay outside in the dark time. Because we know that Russian military are there. They steal stuff. They break into the closed shops and uh, steal everything. This is just a group of thieves with the weapons. This is why it's not safe.
4: Slowly, Andrei said, the Russians started implementing some rules mandating, say, that Kherson's residents could only gather in small groups outside, for instance.
3: they making their own rules, where to go, how to go, how many people we can uh, get together. So they just tell us what to do. But I don't understand who is in charge now in Kherson, because it seems to be that administration is still full of Ukrainian people. So I just don't understand what is the plan of Russian military. Do they want to make it like they did it in Crimea? For now, I think uh, nobody understands what is really going on in Kherson and what the future holds.
4: But then, four days after the Russians occupied Kherson, after people like Andrei had hit it home, leaving only to gather food, something shifted.
3: I've never seen so many people in Kherson because this is a small city. So many people get together at the same time in one place. It was really nice, actually. I didn't expect to see so many people over there, but it looks like there is really great support and people are ready to fight for their rights, for their countries. It was really amazing.
4: The Russian retaliation was swift.
3: We are receiving some information about people who were killed yesterday or two days ago when the Russian military started to come inside the city, and you now it's like a real shock for me how many civil people was killed by military those in just a couple of days.
4: But Andre said that in son residents remained undeterred. He told me he went out again a little bit over a week later. We had uh,
0: like
3: a great meeting today in Kherson to support Ukraine. To show that Kherson is a Ukrainian city, there was lots of people with flags and so on. They was shooting to civil people. They had like fire to air from AK-47, but uh, still uh, people was taking part in this meeting. I did not expect that kind of resistance from civil people who live in Kherson. But they do, and uh, I really like it. I really like how people consolidated in this hard time, and uh, they're given some resistance. I think all of this Russian military, which is coming to Kherson, they now understand that they're not welcome here.
4: The protests have continued. Andrei tells me he goes to some of them, but not everyone. — he said he goes just when he wants to remind the Russians that they're not welcome. Things are in a state of limbo in Herson. Andrei says the Ukrainians have made it clear that they don't want the Russians in their town, but the Ukrainians don't have enough power to get the Russians to leave.
3: The situation seems to be stable. It's not changing much. We see more and more Russians in the city. I see a lot of heavy vehicles on the road, and in general it is not changing, it's already like a routine. At night time we hear some explosive in the countryside five kilometers away from the city. You cannot see anybody outside because people try to avoid come across the Russian military at night, so we stay at home when it's dark time.
4: And during the day, They protest.
1: We'll continue to hear from Andriy about Russia's occupation of Kherson. For all of our Ukraine coverage, you can visit economist.com slash Ukraine crisis.
0: World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024, we'll see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys' club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Mostly, my job is talking to our global network of correspondents and hearing about what they're doing, seeing, hearing, and occasionally drinking. But sometimes, and they are good times, I get to experience it for myself. What I've got here is a bottle of awamori from Japan. On the back, it says it's a rich, complex, full-bodied awamori from Okinawa. Smooth, luxurious texture, long-involved finish, 43% alcohol by volume. But this evidently isn't a classic awamori formulation, because distillers from Okinawa are trying to reinvent their local firewater by making it weaker.
5: Awamori, in, in general, tends to be on the stronger end of the liquor spectrum.
0: Noah Snyder is our Tokyo bureau chief.
5: When you get out to the westernmost edge of the Okinawan Islands, of the Duku the Islands, to Yonaguni, it can get up to about 60% alcohol content, which is quite a lot stronger than the typical spirit. Vodka usually runs around 40%. So the thought for some of the distillers who trade in this strong stuff is that to appeal to a broader market, maybe even an international audience, that they need to water things down just a bit to reach a wider audience.
0: And so what's the backstory on Awamori? How did it come to be? Why don't we know about this stuff yet?
5: Awamori is native to the the Ryukyu Islands, which we, we know as Okinawa now, and it was invented in the 15th century. At the time, the Ryukyu Kingdom was trading widely with its neighbors in Southeast Asia and in Japan. And they developed a technique that uses long grain rice, typically from Thailand and a kind of black koji. It's a kind of mold to stimulate fermentation. And awamori tended to be on the stronger side in part because of the local climate. So the punch it packed helped preserve the drink on these really hot, humid islands. The 60% variant, which is called Hanasake, as the legend goes, started its life as kind of a disinfectant for medical use on ships and in rituals such as funerals. But over the years, it also became a drink for wider consumption. And these days, when folks on Yonaguni drink it, they do tend to cut it with ice and water and chase it down with some food. We had it over roast pork when we were visiting the island. How popular is it? Awamori has fallen on some hard times. Production volumes have been declining for four or five years straight. And in large part, it's because of the changing tastes of the Japanese public. Younger Japanese drink less than their parents do. And when they do drink, they tend to prefer... Softer things, mixed drinks, they're less likely to sit down with a glass of the hard stuff like awamori. And it doesn't have quite the international profile of nihonshu or sake as Japan's most popular drink abroad is known. So there's a whole lot of efforts underway to try to bring awamori again to a wider audience, to a new generation of consumers, both in Japan and abroad.
0: So I think it's only right if we actually have a little sip of this stuff. Our producers have kindly sourced some for me. I'm looking at it now. I've got a 43% version, but I don't think it's the one you're speaking of. But let's have a go. You've got some yourself, right?
5: I do. I still have half a bottle left from the stock I brought back to Tokyo. So I'm drinking the case. We, in fact, had a box of goodies shipped from the Sakimoto distillery on Yonaguni. It's a family-run business where they make some of the Hanasake variant. So I'm drinking from the remainder of the Yonaguni Rebun Sakimoto distillery, limited edition. 43% alcohol by volume.
0: Hang on one second. A little early in my day, but the time difference makes this necessary, Noah. Again, we do what we must for this job. Hmm. Kanpai. Come pie. Even at 43, it does it does hit the back of the throat. It has that sort of that that kind of funk note from sake, but, but amped up. It does. And of course very boozy. Very savory
5: exactly it's savory it's umami it warms the whole mouth the back of the throat too it's wonderful at 10 p.m which is what it is here in tokyo i'm not sure about a morning awamori but uh thank you for being game jason
0: it's a pleasure thanks for helping to expand my booze cabinet
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Marguerite Howell, Kim Gittleson, and Chris Impey. And our sound engineer is Will Rowe.
0: Our senior producers this week are Jat Gill and John-Joe Devlin. Our producers are William Warren, Rory Galloway, and Alizé Jean-Baptiste. And our assistant producer, Abisoye Diro.
1: We had extra production help this week from Emily Elias and Kevin Caners. We'll all see you back here on Monday.